sermon text for this morning. Wonderful to sing of God's truth and the redemption that we have. I know I picked some longer songs today, but I'm I'm always wary of cutting out too many verses. I'm afraid that when I get to heaven, I'm going to have to listen to Charles Wesley explain what he was thinking when he wrote verses 2 and 4 and how he didn't write for them to be cut out of church services. So, wonderful, wonderful songs that we sing. And I actually have a long sermon manuscript today, and we've sung already to past, uh, past the hour. So we'll see how it all turns out. Luke 16. Verse 19, this is God's word given to us, his people, for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment." Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Five of the most common ways to measure someone's self-worth are as follows. Your appearance, your net worth, who you know, what you do, and what you achieve. I saw an article this week uh, online, and the the title, or at the the top of the page, it read something like this. So-and-so, who is a a, a young lady, perhaps in her early 30s, so-and-so surpasses $900 million in net worth, set to become the youngest self-made billionaire ever, colon, what are you doing with your life? The implication, of course, is if you're far behind this young woman in net worth, you aren't doing much with your life. Now, All of these things hopefully are not the things that we think of first when we're trying to think of why a human being might have worth or value. We strive to find our identity in God and in Christ and in his gospel, but we still feel the tug all of the time as these things pull us down to a more earthbound perspective. 
All those things which blind so many to the ultimate truths of God and the call to come to him in faith. So Jesus offers a challenge to this kind of perspective here in this parable, this earthbound perspective. He puts before us someone who fails miserably in all five of these categories. Lazarus, he looks grotesque. He is worth nothing. He has no friends. All he does is beg. And he has nothing on his personal achievements resume. And yet, this Lazarus ends up standing with the patriarch of patriarchs at the side of Abraham, the father of all the faithful. What Lazarus shows us is a picture of what it means to have faith on the earth. That's really the thread that we need to trace. That Lazarus, it's not, he's not exalted necessarily because of his poverty, but what we see through what Jesus says is that he is a man of faith, even though he is trapped in a life of misery and despair. Meanwhile, the rich man is the quintessential success story in the world. But he fails to use the resources that are given to him in light of the world to come. And that's been a theme that we've seen traced throughout the recent chapters in Luke. Are you using what you have been given in light of the fact that this life is not all there is? You think of the parable of the dishonest manager, the unrighteous manager. And the lesson there was use earthly resources in light of eternity. So here's our central truth from this passage. The great disparity or the great differences that people have in life circumstances are not a window to eternity, but rather an opportunity to show how much more we value eternity. So the, the, the different circumstances in life, it's not a window to eternity. It's not peering into the ultimate realities of, of what will be enjoyed in eternity. Rather, the disparity in circumstances are an opportunity to show how much more we value eternity. Here's the life-transforming reality. No matter what we have in this life, good or bad, a lot or a little, God's word confronts us with a call to regard our own status as nothing, to look elsewhere for deliverance, and to use earthly resources in light of what awaits us in glory. No matter what we have, a lot or a little, God's word calls us, confronts us with the call to regard our own status as nothing, to look elsewhere for deliverance, and to use earthly resources in light of what awaits us in glory. Three things to draw out from this passage. A contrast of characters, a crisis of death, and a cry for mercy. First, the contrast of characters. We start with the rich man. We do not find find out anything about this rich man's name. Jesus does not tell us. So we don't know his name, but we know a lot about his lifestyle. It says that he is dressed in purple and fine linen. That's not because purple was his favorite color. That's because back then, purple was a color that showed royalty. It showed social status. Uh, only those who had money to waste on their clothes would be the ones who would wear purple. There was a very expensive uh, Phoenician purple dye that would be used and put on clothes. And really, it was only the people that had uh, extravagant amounts of money who could afford uh, purple clothing. And everything that he puts on his body is expensive and rare. Not only purple, but fine linen. He spares no expense in clothing himself. Once he is dressed, the extravagance has only begun. Verse 19 says that he lived in luxury, but there's actually um, an allusion there to partying or celebrating incessantly and nonstop. Day after day, this man is throwing parties 
and celebrating. It's, an, it's a nonstop party in his life. It's the same verb, actually, that's used in chapter 15 in the parable of the prodigal son. In the parable of the prodigal son, of course, there's all this celebrating that's going on, but it's a celebrating in light of the younger son's return, of his repentance. And so the older son says to his father, why are you throwing this party? For the younger son, he betrayed you. He spent one-third of all you were worth. The loving father says, son, you're always with me. We had to celebrate, he says. And it's the same verb. We had to celebrate. We had to throw a party because your brother was lost, but now he's found. In other words, the loving father knows when it's appropriate to celebrate. It's appropriate to celebrate when someone repents of their sin, when someone throws uh, the, the, the pleasures of this life by the wayside in order to serve the living God. This rich man in this parable has no such sensitivities. There is no party he can't afford. There is no pleasure beyond his reach. And so each and every day he is living in pleasure. When we read last week about the Pharisees being lovers of money, this is really what we first pictured. And then we found out that the Pharisees are not lovers of money in the sense that they live these lavish lifestyles. Rather, they use it to prop up their righteousness. But this is really what we thought of. The mansions, the cars the entourage, the party lifestyle that we see so often glorified in our world, lusted after by so many. How stark then is the contrast that is drawn with this poor man, Lazarus. Now, we did not find out the rich man's name, but Jesus tells us Lazarus's name. And as you might guess, we will see that that becomes significant later in uh, this story. He is laid at the gate, and that just really means that uh, the outer gate of the home of the rich man was the place where he ended up. Lazarus didn't really have the ability to go from one place to the next, so that's where he stayed. And that's why they form a parable together. It's not just because Lazarus is very poor, because he has a a very hard life, or because the rich man is very rich and he lives exorbitantly, extravagantly. It's that they, uh, they live closely together. Their lives intersect in interesting ways. And so because of that, uh, they form the parable and the lesson uh, to this passage. Note the contrast then between the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is covered with fine clothing. Lazarus is covered with sores. Not a very pretty picture. They seem to be oozing in some sense. It's attracting the dogs who come and lick these sores. Then after the rich man is dressed in purple and fine linen, what is he doing? He's gorging on food and uh, he's allowing himself to to drink to his heart's content. Extravagant living, no regard for limits. Not only did he probably eat a lot of food, he probably wasted a lot of food, right? There's probably a lot of leftovers in this man's house. And because he lived extravagantly, there's no need to eat leftovers. Just get rid of it. Lazarus, covered in sores, is on the edge of starvation. You see another contrast there. We're reminded of the prodigal son who wanted to feed himself with the pods that were given to uh, the pigs. Lazarus craves the crumbs that fall from the table. So it's a stark contrast laid out for us in the first few verses. They live close to one another, but their lives could not be any different. And now because we know this story and because we know the gospel of Luke, we, we sort of know that Jesus is setting us up. He's setting us up to show that something bad is going to happen to the rich man and something very good is going to happen to the poor man because that's the kind of thing that we've seen in Luke. But ask yourself, if you actually met someone with the circumstances of a Lazarus, no friends, no net worth, all he does is 
beg. He has no status. Ask yourself, if you were to meet someone like that, how would you really think about them? Would it be hard to push the thought out that perhaps this person is not favored by God? Well, Jesus is challenging all of that in uh, this parable. That is what he is after, that tendency in our minds to do those kinds of things, to assign status based on what we see with our eyes. It all changes, though, uh, in verses 22 and 23. There is a crisis of death. They die right around the same time. Relative to their earthly experience, again, it's much of the same. The rich man has a burial. He has a great funeral. Probably a lot of people are coming to pay their respects and to say, uh, this man was so great. Look at all that he did. Look at all that he achieved. We should all try to be like him. We read that Lazarus did not even have a burial. Jesus leaves that out. No burial, no funeral. Perhaps no one even paid any mind to the fact that he died. Perhaps his body was left to rot in the streets, left as food for scavengers. And yet, at that very moment, the contrast continues, but it's completely reversed, isn't it? Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man who is buried ends up in Hades. That's the Greek word used here, translated as hell. People say oftentimes that death is a great equalizer, right? You don't see the U-Haul trailer being pulled behind a hearse. You can't take any of it with you. Death, in that sense, is a great equalizer, but death also is something that shows great disparity because it shows what was going on really, ultimately, under the surface the whole time what you couldn't see with your eyes. And so Lazarus goes to a life of great blessedness and the rich man goes to a place of great pain and suffering. We remember that we've learned only one of the names. Lazarus is short for Eleazar. And Eleazar is a name that means God helps. God helps. God was the help of Lazarus. He was invisible to most, probably ignored by many, including the rich man, but he was not invisible to God. God was his help. And that is the way that, that one of the ways that Jesus challenges our normal way of Uh, looking at this world and taking it all in with our eyes and trying to assign worth and value and favor and blessing. God may be the help of those people whom we least expect. That that is the case with Lazarus. Angels carrying him to the side of Abraham. Augustine was reflecting upon this as he thought about this passage, reflecting on this, the fact that only one name is given to us. Jesus mentions the name of Lazarus. He doesn't mention the name of the rich man. He said this, Jesus kept quiet about the rich man's name and mentioned the name of the poor man. The rich man's name was thrown around, right? Everybody, everybody knew him. Everybody knew who he was, the kind of name that might show up in entertainment news or even tabloids, the kind of name that people go on various social media and follow. What's this person up to? What kind of pleasures are they availing uh, themselves of recently? His name was thrown around, Augustine says, but God kept quiet about it. The other's name, Lazarus, was lost in silence, and yet God spoke it. You see, God who lives in heaven kept quiet about the rich man's name because he did not find it written in heaven. He spoke about the poor man's name because he found it written there. Indeed, he gave instructions for it to be written there. 
We want so badly in our flesh to make a name for ourselves. We want so badly in our flesh to have good connections, to know the right people. Jesus is bringing forth this reminder. Are you worried about your name being written in heaven? Are you worried about your name being known by the God of the universe? This important person in this life lived a very successful life. Jesus does not even mention his name. The name of someone was a very important thing in that culture. Very important. And yet Jesus utters the name of Lazarus, someone disregarded, someone forgotten. He does not give the rich man a name. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. That was true for Lazarus. We may also think of Psalm 16. We'll be meditating on that psalm tonight. The sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply. And their names I will not take upon my lips. You run after other gods. You run after idols. God will not utter your name. He will not take your name on his lips. So someone may come to this passage and they say, Okay, I understand. Poor people go to heaven. Rich people go to hell. That's, that, is that what you're saying? Is that the lesson from this passage? No, that's not it. Again, Jesus is challenging the mindset. And so what he is doing is he's deconstructing. He's not reversing. To reverse the earthbound perspective, would, would, you know, of course, the earthbound perspective is someone is successful, someone has great worth, someone has great status, they must be favored by God, someone has none of those things, they must be cursed by God. To reverse that would be someone who has nothing is favored by God, period. Someone who has a lot is cursed by God. That would be reversing. Jesus is not reversing, he's deconstructing. There have been people who have tried to say it is just reversal, right? God always favors the poor. God always is saving the poor and standing with all the people who have nothing in this world. No, Jesus is using this in order to deconstruct, in order to teach us that there is not a one-to-one correlation between earthly circumstances and ultimate favor. That is what he is doing. Not reversing, deconstructing. So that's the crisis of death. Let's finally then turn to the cry for mercy. This passage has been really fascinating to to many people because it speaks about the afterlife. It speaks about what happens after death. And for that, some people have tended to um, assign too uh, too much meaning to this text in terms of what we learn about what happens after death. And we need to be cautious about that because this is a parable. Jesus is bringing forth spiritual truths, but perhaps not doing it in an overly literal sense. So John Calvin uh, cautions us against that very thing here. He says, The Lord is painting a picture which represents the condition of the future of life in a way that we can understand. He's adjusting it to our ability to understand. The sum of it is that believing souls, when they leave the body, lead a joyful and blessed life outside the world. And that for the reprobate or our prepared terrifying torments, which can no more be conceived by our minds, then can the infinite glory of God. So in other words, Cal- John Calvin is saying, here's, here's the thrust of it, is that those who believe, who die in faith, they go to a life of blessedness, of great joy. Those who die having not turned to Christ, having not repented of their sin, they go to uh, a place of great torment. 
He's also saying, don't read it in an overly literal fashion that assigns too much meaning. For instance, people who are in Hades can shout up and Father Abraham hears them and Abraham shouts back down. Right? That's not what we're supposed to get from this passage. But there are a couple things that we can take from this passage and re- regarding what happens after death. First, Jesus is not describing here the state of eternity after Christ comes again, right? This is what we call the intermediate state. While we're still awaiting the resurrection of the body, a lot of times we wonder what happens when uh, people die, they believe in Christ, what happens if the resurrection of the body has not happened yet, right? That doesn't happen until the last day. Well, here it says they are brought to Abraham's side, and Jesus spoke all of these things before his own resurrection. We read in the book of Revelation that Jesus transformed the intermediate state for the believer, so that now, as Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is a Christ-centered, joyful, glorious existence for those who have gone before us, for those who have died in Christ. It's the intermediate state not only for Lazarus, who is brought to Abraham's side, but also the same for the rich man. The word here is Hades. And when we think about hell and when we uh, learn about hell based on the scriptures, we're normally thinking about what is going to happen in eternity. And what we read in Revelation 20 is that uh, the, the, the Greek word Gehenna, which describes hell, is different than Hades. And Hades is what is being experienced now by those who have died outside of Christ. And uh, so it's important to keep all that in mind. In Revelation 20, we read that death and Hades, along with the devil and his angels, are cast into hell forever. All of those things are rather sad, rather unpleasant for us to think about. We don't take great delight in the doctrine of hell as biblical Christians. We read in the book of Ezekiel that God does not take great delight in the in the judgment of the wicked, but God's holiness will be honored. God's name will not be profaned. And from our vantage point, we may look and say, it's really hard to square with some of these doctrines. But we do know that on the last day, we will not argue with any of God's righteous judgment judgments. So we need to believe what the Bible says about these things. And in the midst of that, we need to rejoice that we have a great God who proclaims his gospel to all of the world. He says, for all those who turn to him in repentance and who trust Christ in faith, there awaits them not these terrifying and awful torments, but the blessed life that is experienced by Lazarus. And it doesn't matter what your life circumstances are. Christ can be your salvation and your righteousness if you turn to him in repentance and faith. And that ought to be what shapes also our passion for the lost. How much do we pray for those who do not know Christ? How much do we pray that God would give life and sight to blind hearts, that he would save and gather his people under Jesus Christ? How much are we passionate about the advance of the gospel in the world? Let's look at this cry for mercy. Father Abraham, the rich man says. He says that three different times, referring to him as his father, which shows us he's probably resting on what he thinks is the merits of his ethnic heritage, right? He's appealing to the fact that he is a Jew. 
But what we see here, as Abraham goes on with this conversation with the rich man, we see that Abraham exalts not ethnic heritage, but faith. Faith is what saves. And that's what we see in uh, the man Lazarus. We notice that when he cries out to Abraham, the rich man, he says, let Lazarus come and cool my tongue. In other words, he knows Lazarus' name. He knew who he was. He probably knew him as that guy who's, who hangs out outside of his gate and who is really annoying. He would leave his gate, perhaps he would think, I really need to do something about this Lazarus guy. He's sitting out here. He smells up the place. He makes my gate look bad. He shows us here that he knew who he was. Providentially, he had been given all of these riches. Providentially, he had also been given a responsibility to care for this man who was in his life each and every day. It wasn't like, you know, a one-time beggar thing who approaches you on the street. This was a man who was outside of his gate day by day by day. He knew he wasn't out to, to, to get anything and steal from someone He knew who Lazarus was, and yet he did not help him. In the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament, God commanded them to care for those who had nothing, to care for the poor, and hanging over all of that was the truth. God said, you need to remember this. You think about generosity, you think about sharing, you think about helping those in need, you need to remember this. You were slaves in Egypt. And I brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And I gave you land, property, wealth, riches. All that you have is mine. You need to remember that without me, without my salvation, you would have none of that. I think over our lives needs to be hanging the same truth. When we think about the way that we live in this life, the way that we use the things that God entrusts to us, do we remember we were slaves in bondage to sin. And God has transformed us by the power of the gospel, trusting in Christ and given new life. And all the things that we have, they they, they pale in comparison to that salvation. And we need to use the things that God entrusts to us uh, to show not only our love for him, but to show uh, how much we want to serve him and the things that he has entrusted to us. So that was the call upon the rich man, but he did not live that way. He lived thinking that the riches he had were an end in themselves. He can use it for himself. And he probably passed Lazarus by. And what did he think? He thought, well, I've been given a lot. This man's been given nothing. That must be the way it is supposed to be. I've been given all these riches. And some people may think about it this way in today's world. If there is a God... If someone has a lot of riches, if, if there is a God and he's given me so much, he must want me to enjoy it, right? And spend it on myself and all the pleasures that this life can give me. That's the way that the rich man lived. But we see how completely the tables have turned. On earth, Lazarus was begging for just a crumb that fell from the table. Here in Hades, the rich man is begging for just one drop of water to cool his tongue. The agonies that he feels in Hades remind us of the agony of Lazarus' sores. And Abraham responds, and his response shows us that Lazarus was a man of faith. It wasn't his poverty itself or in itself that was a virtue. Rather, Lazarus had faith. Why? Because he shows great trust, acceptance of his lot in life, 
He wasn't there thinking that he deserved all of the things that the rich man did. Rather, he shows us a life of faith. He regarded his own life as nothing. He did not see himself as worthy of having the things that the rich man had. All that he wanted were some scraps that fell from the table. He shows us faith in the God who saves. He shows us that he sees himself as worthless and his life as nothing. So in this parable, Jesus constructs a picture that deals with the extremes, right? Someone who is extravagantly rich and someone who is absolutely nothing. So that with all of the circumstances in the middle, we can apply the same principles. Very few people are going to have a life that is like Lazarus. Yet the call is the same. Do we see God's providence in all things? Do we accept the things that come from his hand? And do we understand that we are called to show faith in the midst of all circumstances, faith in the God who saves. His acceptance by Father Abraham shows us that that is what Jesus is uh, pointing us to. Abraham is the, is the father of faith. He's the picture of faith in the Old Testament. So the fact that he goes to Abraham's side shows us that he had a faith like Abraham, who trusted not in an earthly city, but was looking forward to the city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Lazarus saw his own worth as nothing. He looked outside of himself, while the rich man saw his good things as ends in themselves. He was living his best life now. He thought that's what it was all about, living his best life now. But of course, the crisis of death brings forth that the best life that we can live, it's not right now. It's not right now. But sadly, this will be the best life that many will have. Because they will not heed the call of God. They will not heed the command to repent of sin. To abandon the things we so easily trust in. In our money, our status, ourselves. And turn to the one who gives us life. You know, we live under the curse of sin and death. We see the things that people have to go through. Both rich and poor. The pain, the struggles, the trials. How could we ever think that the best life we could live is now? For those who have faith, of course, the best life that we will live is not right now. So let's look at the last few verses and draw out some applications. The first is what we see in verse 26. Really what we, what we learn in verse 26 is that there are no do-overs after this life. There is one chance to get right with God. One life, one chance. A great chasm has been fixed, Abraham says, between the blessed life at Abraham's side and the torments of Hades which the rich man is experiencing. How does this change and shape our lives? We ask ourselves, are we living in light of ultimate things? Are we right with God? Have we repented of our sins? Or are we perhaps trusting in the things that provide comfort in this life that seem to confirm God's blessing upon you when there will be millions upon millions in eternity who allowed the comforts of this life to blind them to the truth? Seek God while he may be found and let that shape the way that we view uh, how we pray for, how we seek the salvation of the lost. Secondly, the sufficiency of God's word. The, the rich man says, okay, well, if it's one life, one chance, and if there's nothing you can do for me, send Lazarus to go and talk to my family. What's he asking? He's really asking Lazarus to appear somewhat as a ghost. And so uh, what Abraham teaches us is that 
the sufficiency of the word is greater than signs and wonders and even the paranormal. Abraham says it's not just if someone would go and visit them from the dead that they will not, their eyes will not be opened. Their eyes will not be opened if someone rises from the dead. And that was confirmed in Jesus' life. First, he raised Lazarus from the dead, man with the same name, interestingly enough. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And after Lazarus is raised from the dead, what are the religious leaders in Israel doing? They're planning a way to kill Lazarus, that man whom Jesus had just raised from the dead and which no one could deny. Everyone knew he was laid in the tomb. He was there for four days. Comes out covered in all the bandaging, smelling terrible. He was raised from the dead. The religious leaders are saying, okay, now we need to kill Lazarus. Jesus himself was raised from the dead. He appeared to many hundreds of people. The apostles' lives were transformed. 500 eyewitnesses who who saw the risen Christ. And yet, people were still rejecting. People are still rejecting today. Today, the resurrection of Christ, most disputed fact in human history, can't be disproven. It's turned the world upside down. It's taken every corner of this globe by storm. It's changed lives. It continues to do so at a rate which confounds sociologists and anthropologists, and yet, and yet people still reject the risen Christ, the God-man who walked this earth and who was raised again. And Abraham says what it comes down to is the law and the prophets are enough. Why? Because the Spirit of God working within the Word of God is the only thing that can overcome the sinfulness of our hearts. It's the only thing that can grant sight and faith to where there was blindness and death. Right? That is all that can accomplish the spiritual life that we have in Christ. And so we need to shape our lives around that, the conviction, the centrality, and the sufficiency of the word of God. And then finally, a word of comfort and a word of caution. Perhaps you need to hear and be reminded that circumstances on this earth are not a window to God's favor or his judgment. Perhaps there's a week, a month, a year, a number of years where nothing seems to go right, you begin to say to yourself, God can't favor me. God can't love me. There's no way. How could this many bad things happen to me in a row without any break? Well, look at Lazarus. Look at Lazarus. His life was not enjoyable, and yet he allowed all of his circumstances to shape his faith and to strengthen his faith. The call of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot sustain you. The call of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot sustain you. If your life is very difficult, it's not because God does not love you. If you have faith in Christ, have faith in trial, and know that he is shaping you into his faithful servant who will one day be whisked away to enjoy eternal life and eternal bliss in the presence of Christ and to await the resurrection. Perhaps you think that those who have good things in life are those who are automatically favored by God. Look at the rich man. Relative to what Jesus has recently said in Luke, he should have used his earthly resources to do what? To make friends, as the dishonest and the unrighteous manager showed us. He should have made friends because riches do not mean that God favors you. It's not a window to eternity, an opportunity to show how much more you value eternity. To those who have faith in Christ, to those who walk through this life with faith, your best life is not now, so live like it. To those who have earthly riches, this will be your best life right now, but God's word tells you to stop 
living like it, to turn away from, from all of those things, to, to look elsewhere for deliverance, and to start living in light of eternity. Let's pray. Father, all of these words then, we entrust that they are your words, and we ask that you transform our lives and our hearts by these truths. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let, it, let us.